Section 4 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 3, Part 1, Accession to Power. On the 7th of May, 1783, the anniversary of his previous motion for parliamentary reform, Pitt repeated it. It was supported by one and opposed by the other of the two secretaries of state and was rejected by 293 to 149. A month later he introduced a bill for the reform of abuses in the public offices. In his speech he produced the famous allegation that North, in the last year of his ministry, had been credited with the consumption of 1,300 pounds for stationery, of which 340 pounds was for whipcord. The bill passed languidly through the Commons, but was promptly strangled in the Lords, where the Ministry opposed it with vigor, a proceeding on which the country could not but comment. In the recess, Pitt went abroad for the only time in his life. He was accompanied by his brother-in-law Elliot and by Wilberforce. They first established themselves at Reims, with the view of learning the language, residing for six weeks at the Archbishop's Palace. Here Pitt was thrown into close relationship with the prelate's nephew, the young Abbé de Perigord. They were to meet again in 1792, when Talleyrand, as a lay diplomatist, was negotiating with Pitt as an autocratic prime minister. Pitt, it is said, did not make much progress in French, though he proceeded to Paris and thence to Versailles. The son of Chatham could not fail to make a stir in that volatile and curious court. It is even asserted that he narrowly escaped marriage with the daughter of Necker, who was afterwards to talk down Europe and write Corinne. The queen, indeed, is said to have considered the young lion awkward and dull, and so called forth the pun of Chasteloup, c'est égal, il ne s'en dépitera pas pour ça. But the politicians came round him in shoals. Two remarks of his during that visit have been preserved, one on the English, the other on the French Constitution. Of the first he said, The part of our Constitution which will first perish is the prerogative of the King and the authority of the House of Peers. Of the second he remarked to a Frenchman, You have no political liberty, but as to civil liberty, you have more of it than you suppose. It was here, too, that he paid his famous tribute, not less generous than true, to Fox. Someone expressed surprise that a man of so little character should wield so great an influence. The remark is just, replied Pitt, but then you have not been under the wand of the magician. He is said also to have astonished Franklin, not merely by his talents, but by the anti-republican character of his sentiments. For the rest, he seems to have hunted and amused himself. He returned to England on the 24th of October, 1783. Parliament met on the 11th of November. On the 18th, Fox asked for leave to introduce a bill for the better government of India. That day month, the government had ceased to exist. Into the merits of the bill it is not now necessary to enter. 
North, when he saw it, sagaciously described it as a good receipt to knock up an administration. In its scope and audacity, it savored even more of the elder than the younger Fox. The objections to its main provision, which handed over the government of India to irremovable commissioners named for four years, have been perhaps overstated. But it was clear that it furnished an admirable weapon against an unpopular coalition which had resisted economical reform, demanded a great income for a debauched prince, and which now aimed at securing a monopoly of the vast patronage of India, patronage which generally exercised by Dundas was soon to secure Scotland for Pitt. In the House of Commons the majority for the bill was over one hundred. The loftiest eloquence of Burke was exerted in its favor, and Fox was as ever dauntless and crushing in debate. But outside Parliament the King schemed and controversy raged. There was a storm of caricatures, one of these by Sayer, of Fox as an oriental potentate entering Leadenhall Street on an elephant. Fox himself admitted had greatly damaged him. When the bill arrived at the House of Lords, the undertakers were ready. The king had seen Temple and empowered him to communicate to all whom it might concern his august disapprobation. The uneasy whisper circulated, and the joints of the lords became as water. The peers who yearned for lieutenancies or regiments, for stars or strawberry leaves, the prelates who sought a larger sphere of usefulness, the minions of the bedchamber and the janissaries of the closet, all temporal or spiritual, whose convictions were unequal to their appetite, rallied to the royal nod. Some great nobles, such as Gower and Bridgewater, the one old, the other indifferent to politics, roused themselves to violent exertion on the same side, keeping open tables and holding hourly conclaves. The result was overwhelming. The triumphant coalition was paralyzed by the rejection of their bill. They rightly refused to resign, but the king could not sleep until he had resumed the seals. Late at night, he sent for them. The messenger found Fox and North gaily seated at supper with their followers. At first, he was not believed. The king would not dare do it, exclaimed Fox, but the undersecretary charged with the message soon convinced them of its authenticity, and the seals were delivered with a light heart. In such dramatic fashion and the springtide of its youth fell that famous government, unhonored and unwept. England, once said Mr. Disraeli, does not love coalitions. She certainly did not love this one. On this occasion there was neither hesitation nor delay. The moment had come and the man. Within twelve hours of the king's receiving the seals, Pitt had accepted the first lordship of the treasury and the chancellorship of the exchequer. That afternoon his writ was moved amid universal derision, and so commenced a supreme and unbroken ministry of seventeen years. Those who laughed were hardly blamable, for the difficulties were tremendous. Temple, who acted as Secretary of State, resigned in three days, having demanded, apparently, too considerable a reward for his services. To the young minister, his first cousin, 
This was a cruel blow, but Pitt never faltered, though it gave him a sleepless night, while Temple retired in sullen magnificence to Stowe. On the other hand, the opposition, already in high and hysterical spirits, were proportionately elated. This boyish prank, writes Eliot, a shrewd and able Whig, is already over. Probably they, the embryo government, meant to gain a few days' time and to wear some sort of countenance in order to make a capitulation, if it can be obtained. They have lost all character, continues the supporter of the coalition, and are considered as a set of children playing at ministers, and must be sent back to school, and in a few days all will have returned to its usual course. Pitt's friends seem largely to have shared the views of his enemies. Camden, the devoted friend of Chatham and Grafton, whom Chatham had made prime minister, both refused office. For secretaries of state, he had to fall back on Tommy Townsend, now chiefly remembered by Goldsmith's famous line, who had become Lord Sidney, and the young Marquis of Carmarthen, who was upright and well-intentioned, but vain and inadequate. He secured, indeed, the scowling hypocrisy of Thurlow and the naval fame of Howe, but the one was insidious and the other dumb. It is always difficult to understand the principles on which the cabinets of the eighteenth century were formed, Pitt's was a procession of ornamental phantoms. He himself was the only cabinet minister in the House of Commons. Dundas, lately Lord Advocate and now Treasurer of the Navy, who was to be his right-hand man from the beginning to the end of his administration, was outside the cabinet. Of the cabinet ministers, five occupied in solemn silence the front bench of the House of Lords, while Thurlow on the Woolsack, though he often spoke, as often as not, did so in opposition to the government. Never was there an appearance, to use Charles Townsend's graphic phrase, such a lute-string administration. There was one remarkable omission. Nothing was offered to Shelburne. At first sight, this can only seem attributable to gross imbecility or to flagrant ingratitude. That Pitt, who was gasping in a famine of capacity, should pass by the ablest statesmen available, savors of insanity. That he should deliberately and without any political difference ignore the minister who had a few months before given him the lead of the House of Commons, on whom at the moment of resignation he had passed significant eulogy, and who had been his father's closest adherent in public life, seems so incredibly ungracious as to leave a stain on Pitt's memory. But his action was deliberate. It had been determined months before. To clear Pitt, one must understand Shelburne. And in any case, it is not amiss to pause a moment by the complex character of the politician who introduced Pitt to official life, whose fate it has been to be utilized as a political stage property by a brilliant novelist, who was also a prime minister, and who is variously represented as a popular statesman crushed in the contest with a Venetian constitution or a sinister schemer of unusual guile. But he was neither a Canning nor a Doddington, though his career presents strange complications. The problem may be briefly stated thus. How is it that a noble of high lineage and fortune, of great talents, 
and of an intelligence superior to his talents, who was a distinguished soldier before he was twenty-four, who was a cabinet minister at twenty-five, and a secretary of state at twenty-nine, when secretaries of state often represented a greater power than the minister nominally first, who was a prime minister at forty-five, and who, to pass beyond dignities, was far beyond his age in enlightenment. A free trader, the friend of men like Franklin and Bentham and Morlay, the leader of men like Dunning and Barre, who, if not the friend, had at least the courage to be the admirer of the successful rebel Washington, with whom he had to sign peace. How was it that this man, so rarely gifted and with opportunities so splendid, should only have touched power to see it vanish forever from his grasp, and to spend the remainder of his life under universal detestation and distrust? These phrases are unhappily not too strong. It is not too much to say that during the last decade of the eighteenth century, the greatest reproach that could be directed against a statesman, short of calling him a Jacobin, was to insinuate a connection with Berkeley Square, where Shelburne had completed the palace which Butte had been forced to forsake. The key to the enigma seems to lie in the bitter description which he penned of Chatham in his cynical but priceless fragment of autobiography, when he contemptuously dismisses the popular conception of his leader and pronounces him to be a mere actor, incapable of friendship, anything but disinterested, studied and artificial in all that he wrote or said or did. This was what the man who had gloried in being Chatham's right-hand man wrote of Chatham when Chatham was dust and his lieutenant forgotten. Elaborate and picturesque as it is, it discloses the fury of a disappointed man wrecked on the cause to which he attributes his failure. It is the sneer of a worshipper burning the idol which he thinks has betrayed him and attempting to warm himself at the fire. He had ruined his life by a great mistake. He had misread his lesson and misunderstood his master, but the fault, as is usual, seemed to the pupil not to be with himself but with his teacher. After a cool survey of Butte and Holland and the politicians of that kidney, he had decided that Chatham was the grand type, and only discovered too late that it was also an impossible one. He could readily see that he must be satisfied with less eloquence and a paler fire, but what seemed within his reach was the patriotic spirit the attempt to be above and aloof from party, the combination by which the popular prophet cringed before the king, easy to emulate were the mysterious retirement and the haughty demeanor, easiest of all the pompous, fawning style which befogged and bewildered Chatham's contemporaries. All this Shelburne compassed, but what he never understood until it was too late was that these were not Chatham's aids, but Chatham's drawbacks. There was something in the man who almost discovered popular feeling in England, which was akin to inspiration. At any rate, there was the occasional flash lighting up all his nature, the low and the dark as well as the brilliant and the sublime, the purlieus as well as the majesty of the structure, which dazzled the beholder into seeing nothing but a great splendor. Chatham had and sought no friends. The only shadow of such a relation that he knew 
was his wife's unamiable family. Shelburne was, like Camden and Grafton, merely the superior disciple, and he was slow in discovering the difficulty of treading in the teacher's steps. In the meantime, having earlier in life gravely compromised his reputation for sincerity in a transaction with Holland, who conceived himself to have been betrayed on the occasion, loudly stigmatized as a fraud, he further confirmed the general opinion of his subtlety by his imitation of his master in a sort of stilted finesse. He himself indefinitely strengthened this impression by his constant professions of guileless simplicity and of a candor so effusive as to compel him to live in retirement for fear of self-betrayal. Lampoons and caricatures are unanimous on this point. The testimony of his friends is only different in degree. Bentham extols his heart at the expense of his understanding, and charitably attributes the ambiguity of his patron to confusion of mind. But he admits a wildness about him, in that he conceived groundless suspicions about nothing at all. Further, Bentham declares that Shelburne had a sort of systematic plan of gaining people. The third Lord Holland, who avows his partiality, gives much the same opinion. Rose, who was naturally and officially a judge of character, speaks of his discomfort in acting with Shelburne, who was sometimes passionate or unreasonable, occasionally betraying suspicions of others, entirely groundless, and at other times offensively flattering. I have frequently been puzzled to decide which part of his conduct was least to be tolerated. Perhaps an even more curious confirmation is afforded by Reynval, who visited England as an envoy during the peace negotiations. Lord Shelburne, he writes, is not ignorant of the suspicions which have been and probably still are entertained in France as to his straightforwardness, and he feels them the more in proportion as he believes that he has not deserved them. I venture to be of the same opinion, and if I say so, it is because I consider my personal acquaintance and conversations with Lord Shelburne have placed me in a position to know him perfectly, and so forth. This was in the middle of September 1782, and in December he writes, You will perhaps ask me how it is possible to reconcile the character I gave you of Lord Shelburne with his conduct relative to the equivalent for Gibraltar. And then he explains, There lies the whole matter. Shelburne's good faith was always exemplary, but always in need of explanation. Some people seem to think that a reputation worse than his deserts unfairly encumbered his career. But had his name been as untainted as Bayard, his style both in writing and speaking would have accounted for the most inveterate distrust. The English love a statesman whom they understand, or at least think that they understand. But who could understand Shelburne? Whether from confusion of head or duplicity of heart, his utterances were the very seed of suspicion. The famous lines in the Roliad are merely the versification of a speech he actually delivered. A noble duke affirms I like his plan, I never did, my lords, I never can. Shame on the slanderous breath which dares instill that I, who now condemn, advised the ill. Plain words, thank heaven, are always understood, I could approve, I said, 
but not I would. Anxious to make the noble duke content, my view was just to seem to give consent, while all the world might see that nothing less was meant. In 1792, the king asked his advice, and Shelburne gave it in a memorandum which may be commended to any student of the man. It is a mere labyrinth of stilted ambiguities. Take again his speech on the Irish Union, from which both parties to that controversy to this day extract the strongest opinions in support of their respective views. Even his personal appearance, his sleek countenance and beady eye, imply the idea, which is conveyed to the ordinary Briton by the word Jesuitical, and the caricatures of the time represent the outer wall of Lansdowne House as a mere rampart to screen his plots. The pity of it is that his son, with much the same abilities, but richer by the warning and aiming lower, achieved the position within the father's reach so exactly as to offer a reproachful contrast the splendid noble, the patron of arts and letters, playing with rare dignity a public part, from duty rather than inclination, sought, not seeking, a strength instead of a weakness, to his associates a pillar, not a quicksand. It was because Pitt had so truly measured Shelburne's character that he preferred any risk and any reproach to including his late chief in his cabinet. He thus earned Shelburne's undying enmity, but that, as things stood, was rather an advantage than otherwise. End of section four.